Hello and welcome to BJGP Interviews. My name is Ewan Lawson. In this episode, I am talking to Dr. Daniel Stowe, who's a research associate at the Population and Health Sciences Institute in Newcastle. Uh, and he's funded by the School of Primary Care Postdoctoral Launching Fellowship. The paper we're going to discuss is Timing of GP End-of-Life Recognition in People Age 75 Years or Over, Retrospective Cohort Study Using Data from Primary Healthcare Records in England. And so the first thing I asked Daniel to tell us was a little bit more about the research and exactly what they did. Um, we were interested in finding out when GPs recognise or anticipate end of life in people aged over 75. So we were looking at coding um, that indicates anticipation and friend of life. Uh, and so this was an end of life care study using electronic healthcare records in a, a sample of people who died uh, between January 1st, 2015 and January 1st, 2016, so over a year. And then we followed those people back and taking information recorded in their health records to see when the first codes were entered to show somebody actually thought actually this person might be, um, well, maybe at high risk of dying in a shorter period of time. Yeah, so retrospective cohort study, as it says in the paper, and um, tell us a little bit more about um, which practices you used, whereabouts they, they were all based. So the, the data that we have are provided by uh, Research One, which is one of the uh, kind of data warehouses. Um, so you can think sort of CPRD is another one, FIN is another one, and Key Research, or Research One is another one of those similar data providers. Their records are drawn almost exclusively from System One practices. Um, so I know in the paper we talk a little bit about some of the limitations of that, so geographical representation, and certainly at the time of extract, I think System One was probably one of the less problematic in terms of geographical representativeness. Um, but certainly I think there's a tendency for areas of the east of England to be overrepresented in that particular database. But it still covers a lot of practices across England um, as well, though, doesn't it? A third of practices were using System 1 at the time. I'm not quite sure what the uh, market share is at the moment. But um, back then it was yeah about a third of practices were using System 1. Yeah, so um, extensive, really, and it's it's interesting that uh, this is uh, not relevant to your study particularly, but there's quite a there is geographical variation uh, up here in the northwest where I'm based. It's all EMIS, and yeah. actually we have very little coverage from System One. But okay. um, it's easy to forget that actually System One is it's got extensive coverage, you know, over a third of practices in England. So mm -hmm. you're covering a lot of ground with this paper. Tell yeah. us a little bit then about what you found. We we had records for thirteen just over thirteen thousand people who died in that um, year long window, um, and we. Uh, we have quite a long code list of um, that we developed looking at QOF codes relating to end-of-life care and um, also in discussion with clinical colleagues um, I work with um, and also using there's a read code browser called the CRUD browser that you can use to search on terms relating to end-of-life and so we were looking to see which of those codes appeared in people's records and when they appeared uh, and so we were looking at essentially creating a timeline allowing people onto a common timeline showing how many months before death were these codes entered. Um, and so we did things, we, we removed any codes that appeared more than 10 years um, before the person died, and also any codes that appeared after they died. So we were really looking at coding before death. Yep, and um, how did we do? Okay, so taking quite a, a, an inclusive approach to what anticipating death would look like, um, it's just under half of people had a, a code to indicate that their GP had anticipated their death um, at kind of any point before death. Um, and that's slightly lower for the 12 months before death. It's around about 17% of people had a code entered 12 months or earlier um, to show that someone thought actually this person might be about to die. Yeah, so 
Um, we were talking a little bit about this beforehand, um, and I think there's a case of, do you, do, I don't think you went into this in the study, but did you get any sense of, I don't think there was any factors that you can identify from this study about why people might have been entered onto the register or not, but it's something you've considered, I think, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's it's not kind of really an analytic study in that sense. There's no modelling looking at associated factors. Um, but certainly, I think the age of death is is, is rising as, as populations age. More and more people are um, surviving through middle ages and arriving later in life with things like um, multiple long-term conditions and frailty. And so no necessarily headline diagnosis. Um, you can point to and say this, this is a, a terminal disease. Um, and so those tra those trajectories are slightly more challenging to recognize. So we think that might be why that recognition is is difficult. Um, so actually kind of saying, yes, I think this person is going to die is a challenge because we know that those later life trajectories are often um, much more challenging to recognize. Yeah. And so one of the secondary aims in your study was to um, look at um, place of death. Tell us a little bit about what you found there. Yeah, so, so we were interested, first of all, about the, the anticipation. Then we were looking at what people did after that. So what were the follow-up actions? So the, the first thing is really palliative registration. So I think it's, it's one of the um, good practice guidelines is that people should be on a palliative register, um, usually for 12 months before death. And um, whether you think that's appropriate or not, I'm, I'm not really here to discuss that, but it's, it is the, you know, it's one of the targets. Um, so it's kind of, it's interesting to see that, um, you know, say about 50% of people are having their um, death anticipated, it's a much lower proportion of people are on that palliative register and they're not on there for very long. Um, people are asked questions about indicate that kind of death is recognised, so um, preferences for place of care. Um, people are more likely to be asked about that than preferences for place of death, which I think is quite interesting as well. So perhaps reflecting how, maybe how comfortable people feel having those discussions or um, something we may come on to a bit later, how comfortable feel coding for those kinds of discussions. Yeah, um, well, um, it might be worth pausing there just now because I think there's there's some enormous strength in this study, but we should also talk about the, the, some of the limitations in terms of how far we can interpret this. And um, we've talked about coding before on the podcast, and it's obviously really important and core to what you've done with your re research here as well. And that, that does open up some areas that we need to be aware of, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, I mean, the, the strengths of the coding approach are the codes are quite easy to make portable. So you know, with all the joined up healthcare systems that people are starting to, to experience, um, those codes can ping across between systems quite easily and you can use them to automate processes or just to quickly show that somebody has either this disease or this preference. And so it's quite a quick way of communicating things. Um, so I think the main weakness with the approach is that, and um, certainly looking in the limitation section of the study, people might not be comfortable actually coding these discussions because it formalizes what could be it's quite a sensitive discussion, a difficult discussion to have. Um, and it, it may be that people don't feel comfortable coding in that way, or they may be recording them in free text areas um, because you've got to capture an enormous amount of information. This is very sensitive conversations. Free text would seem like a, an appropriate place to do that. But that's unfortunately, that's less portable. And it's also not amenable to this kind of study, these kind of big electronic healthcare records uh, studies. You, you don't get access to the free text um, mostly because of the challenge of anonymizing that data. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting area. And the free text, and one could argue that GPs who are have got really great continuity with their patients who are seeing those people day in, day out, and are having complex discussions and nuanced conversations about place of death, coding's really going to be something they shy away from. So we, we really don't know, do we? But um, 
It's a, and one of the other things that I think you mentioned in the study is, um, or you certainly mentioned in the discussion section, is about people wanting to change their mind as well about yeah. their place of death. And tell us a little bit more about what you know about that. Um, so I'm, <laughs> I'm not the expert on changing in preferences. Um, this was actually something that was brought up um, by another PhD student in our department, and her, her main interest is, is changing in preferences. Um, so there, there, there's a systematic review that we reference that suggests that um, it's about a fifth of people would change their preference. Um, but it's a little bit uncertain about whether that's if asked or 20 percent of people would change their preference. It's a very low number of people in our study were actually asked more than once or have a coded record that they were asked more than once about their preference. And of that very small proportion, about 20% of people did change. Um, now, the majority of changes there, um, we, we think probably reflect essentially place of residence. So it's people changing either between home to care home or care home to home. So it's the, the idea of actually when people say my preferred place of care or death is home, um, I think there's a lot of work to unpack what we mean when we say home. Does that have to actually be the building we've resided in or is there a sense of home that we can create in other geographical locations? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. It's a really interesting little um, uh, wrinkle from this study that, that you know, your number came out. It was very consistent with that systematic review as well. Then the mm -hmm. numbers you did look yeah. at that it was, which is um, which is an interesting factor. I was going to ask about which way you thought it went. I was because I don't think you detail in the paper whether it was, you know, people were more likely to want to go towards, you know, whether they were heading towards hospital or home or whether it was a change of their home. As regards place of death, um, so that small number of people who were asked about it, um, the majority of people um, asked for that change to be from their own home to a care home. And that was about about 36% of people. Okay, interesting. So it probably just reflects, as you suggested there, their individual circumstances and, you know, perhaps who was there at home to look after them. Absolutely. And, but um, it's another limitation of the study, if you like, that we don't have information about actually where that person was when the preference was discussed. In terms of the palliative care register, um, tell us a little bit about the controversies around that, because that's something that I haven't experienced before. That actually, you know, that it seems to me self-evidently a good thing that someone should be in a palliative care register. You allude to this in the paper, and it's perhaps not universally a good thing. I mean, really, there's, there's going to have to be a sea change in how we approach end-of-life care and how we think about caring for people who are dying, because we have this aging population. The current models of care which are really designed around single illness trajectories and really specifically cancer. Um, but, I mean, the fact is people will still be dying with cancer, but they'll also be dying with lots of other multiple complications. So the palliative register um, really is picking up people who may need specialist care. Actually, people dying with you know, multiple long-term conditions and frailty, we're not sure that specialist care is the most appropriate intervention. Um, it may be that... Uh, kind of a per required needs multidisciplinary team can provide for those needs so palliative registration it, it's a target but it may not be the most appropriate target for the population that we're we're looking at um, and the other thing is in terms of i think it's something that one of the reviewers raised and i'm really glad that they did it's a resource question uh, I, you know unfortunately um palliative registration and you know there's a kind of a cost implication there and applying the, the, the levels of care that that implies. And um, if you were to do that, um, there is inevitably um, going to be a, a cost, a financial cost, unfortunately. So um, maybe it's important to register more people so you can actually highlight to policymakers 
keeping control of the budgets and the, the scale of the work that's, that's going to be needed. Uh, well, it's important to talk about the limitations, but this is was a really strong study um, and it had um, some really important findings. Perhaps we'll get you just to, we're approaching the end, get us to get you to summarise some of the key findings again for us, Daniel. Of course. So I think the, the key thing is in primary care, um, death was anticipated in roughly half of people aged 75 and over, um, but only one in five people had their end of life preferences recorded um, and only one in eight people were on a palliative register. Daniel, that's incredibly interesting. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you very much for listening to this BJGP podcast. The original research papers and articles can be found at bjgp.org. The show notes and podcast audio can be found at bjgplife.com. Do share if you've enjoyed it. Subscribe via all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts, Google Spotify or your podcaster of choice. Thanks again.